Good morning. Let's begin our time this morning with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we gather together this morning as a body separated. And our prayer is that our hearts would be knit together even as our bodies are apart. We ask that this morning as we open your word that you would bless us that we would be able to see and perceive and understand what you have spoken. We pray, Lord, that you would grant to our body strength to endure, and we pray that you would help us to lean upon your strong arm and to find the help and the comfort that we need. We continue to lift up our leaders and we pray, Lord, specifically that you would give grace and wisdom to our president and to Congress. We pray that they would act righteously, that they would do justly. We pray that you would protect them from corruption, from dishonest gain, and we ask that you would would bless them with the wisdom that they need to lead our nation at this time. We also pray for our state that you would give, especially to our governor, the wisdom that she needs, and that you would give to her and to all of our leaders the right process that we can go through in opening things back up. We pray that you would give to believers across the world the strength that they need to trust in you, whether their government is righteous or not. May their hope in you not waver. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Jeremy returns from his vacation this Tuesday, and we're celebrating with him that Yael and Verity are now both home. I'll be continuing our study in Ephesians, where he left off. And next week, hand things back to him. Our cancellation of services and gatherings is going to continue at least through next Sunday, May 3rd. The elders are doing their best to stay on top of what's allowed uh, and when we'll be able to gather again in some form. And we'll keep you up to date on that each week. Now, because we're anticipating at least several more weeks before we're able to gather, We're working toward making some additional opportunities for study and communication available to you. We're reluctant to create anything like a virtual service because it's just impossible to replace our actual gathering in person. But given our circumstances, we think it would be a blessing to many of you to hear other people's voices and see some faces, even if it's in the limited way of a video. So we want to itemize what's currently being offered and give you an opportunity to participate if you desire. First, Dave Lample is continuing to publish his class notes and posting the recordings of his teaching through 1 Corinthians. You can get the links to those notes and recordings in the bulletin or email the office or Dave. You can also download that material and listen to it at your convenience. It's available whenever you want. Carol Hardy is going to start back up his ABF on meeting with God daily. He'll be doing that via Zoom. 
If you want to participate in that class, you're going to need to have Zoom installed on your computer or tablet or phone, and you'll need the invitation link and the password. In order to get that, you need to email him, and he will send it directly to you. This is only a live meeting, and it won't be posted or recorded, so you need to be ready to go at 1130 a few minutes before you're able to join, and it will actually begin at 11.30 Sunday mornings. We're also planning for the first time next week to post not only the audio of Pastor Jeremy's message, but also the video. You'll be able to download the audio just as you have been, and you can watch the video if you prefer that format. Remember that since we can't meet together, offerings can be mailed into the church at P.O. Box 200, Martinsdale, Iowa, 50160. And now let's turn our attention to God's Word. Let's begin our time of study this morning by reading our passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word and we study these verses, I pray that you would give to us a picture of our former way of life and the new way of life, the new walk that you have given to us. We ask that you would give us a clear picture in our minds of the transformation that you would have take place in our lives, the transformation into the likeness of Christ. Amen. Well, after spending three chapters detailing God's marvelous work in salvation and in the church, Paul began chapter 4 with the promise of telling us how we should then live. He said in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But after just two verses dealing with the manner we should walk, he entered another extended discussion of the unity of the body, its gifting, and its ministry. So you might think, we're off to a bad start if this is the part of the book that's supposed to be practical. But it's 
very good to remind ourselves that all truth is practical. You can't separate doctrine from practice. It's just that certain doctrines are more easily seen. Certain truths are always visible, easy to see, while other truths are hidden from sight. When you drive up to someone's house, you'll notice its color, its shape, its orientation, but no one in their right mind would say that the foundation or the frame or the rafters are unimportant because we can't see them. So admittedly, the first three chapters of Ephesians and even much of the first 16 verses we've gone through in chapter 4 have had less obvious application. But those truths are the wall frames Paul will attach the siding of conduct to. And it's important to remember that all the siding in the world without a foundation and a frame cannot build a solid house. And all the application and practice in the world without truth and doctrine to hold it up does not make a strong Christian. So having justified our extensive time studying doctrine and truth, the good news is our passage today actually begins a section of intense application and practice. From chapter 4, verse 17, basically to the end of the book, Paul's going to be hanging the siding on the house, laying the shingles. And what we're going to learn is easily visible, tangible, and practical in our lives. So, I'm looking forward to the next three years while we finish up Ephesians. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I don't think it will be that long. If any of you feel like it is long, I'd like to remind you of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've probably heard his name before. He was a faithful evangelical preacher in London. And just by way of comparison, it's always encouraging to me if I think I'm going slow. I looked up the passage that we're studying today, chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones also covered this passage in just 15 sermons. I think that keeps things in perspective. If you ever feel like Pastor Jeremy's moving slow, he's not. This morning, we look at our new walk, our new walk, the path of transformation from unbeliever to child of God, from the walk of flesh to the walk of faith. There's a major contrast in this passage between what Paul calls the Gentiles in verse 17 and you, those who have learned Christ, in verse 20. What's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian? I'm not thinking primarily of worldview or beliefs, but practice. What's the difference? How great is the distinction in day-to-day -day living between those in the church and those outside the church? If you had cameras watching them day after day, would a believer and an unbeliever really be that different? Perhaps you have an unbelieving friend or a family member who's challenged you saying, I don't see the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Well, in Ephesians 4, 17-24, Paul's going to detail the radical difference between the Gentiles and the Christians, between unbelievers and believers, between the walk of flesh 
and the walk of faith. And what we'll see is not a list of particular activities which distinguish non-Christian from Christian. Those lists do exist. But what we'll see here is the difference in walk. The distinction in our way of living. First, he explains the walk of flesh. Let's read that in verses 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is the walk of flesh. We can break this into two parts. A, their desperate condition, verses 17 to 18, and B, their deplorable conduct, verse 19. Let's begin with their desperate condition. Notice that Paul's not discussing their desperate condition for abstract reasons. He's not railing against unbelievers because he doesn't like them. Rather, he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. His whole reason for discussing the walk of flesh is to warn us not to follow it. Remember back in verse 1 he said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now he picks that back up and says, negatively, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Note that implied within that command is that we all once walked as the Gentiles do. You remember what Paul said back in 2, 1 through 4, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So in discussing the desperate condition of non-Christians, we're not reveling in our moral superiority over them or looking down at them as some spectacle, but rather we're being reminded of what we used to be like and what we must no longer be like. So, what is their condition? First, they are futile in their thinking. They are futile in their thinking. Paul says they walk in the futility of their minds. This doesn't mean their minds don't work or that their minds are inferior to ours. On the contrary, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27, that there are not many of us who are wise in worldly standards, but God chose the foolish in the world to shame them. So I would say there is at least a prevalence of Christians whom the world would not label as smart. So what does Paul mean when he says non-Christians walk in the futility of their minds? Well, the notion of futility is purposeless, vain, or empty. 
It's not that unbelievers have inferior minds. It's that no matter how powerful their mental capacity might be, their minds are fixed on the wrong aim. They're used toward vain ends. They're focused on empty pursuits. This is a similar description to what Paul says in Romans 1.21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They walk in the futility of their minds. And second, B, they are darkened in their understanding. They are darkened in their understanding. The mind and understanding are very similar ideas. But while unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds, their understanding or their comprehension of reality is actually darkened. They may be more intelligent than we are in many ways, but their understanding is materially diminished due to their unbelief. When you listen to an unbeliever explain the world or society, explain a new fossil discovered, or a problem with his family, because he has denied the truth, his comprehension of reality, his understanding of the truth, will be darkened. So they're futile in their thinking, they're darkened in their understanding, and third, they are alienated from the life of God. They are alienated from the life of God. In Ephesians 2.12, we saw that the Gentiles in the flesh were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Here, Paul points out that the spiritual Gentiles, or non-Christians, are alienated from the life of God. Alienation speaks to exclusion from and the inaccessibility of spiritual life for them. Unbelievers are alive physically, but spiritually they are excluded from God's life. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, just as we once were. So that's the condition of an unbeliever. They're futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, and alienated from the life of God. We'll see shortly what their conduct is, how they behave, but Paul first answers another question which I think is very important to address. Why are they in this condition? This is number two in your outline. Why are they in this condition? Even as we read that unbelievers are alienated from the life of God, I think we feel the tug of injustice, the weight of why. Why were they alienated? The math is pretty simple. If they're alienated from the life of God, they're not going to live spiritually. So why are they futile in their thinking? And why are they darkened in their understanding? And why are they alienated from the life of God? What caused this? And Paul gives two answers to the questions. Two reasons they are in this condition. First, they're in this condition because of their ignorance. Because of their ignorance. 
you hear the same concept spoken of by Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're ignorant. And Peter says to his fellow Jews about their putting Jesus to death, Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And Paul says about himself, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So there's often a causal link between ignorance and sinfulness. And there seems to be at least some level of excusing wrong when it's done in ignorance. If nothing else, the ignorance seems to lessen the severity of the judgment. And so it's not uncommon for people to keep themselves ignorant as a means of excusing themselves. Most unbelievers are happy to remain ignorant of what God's Word says, to remain ignorant of who Jesus Christ is, because they hope that ignorance will excuse them in the end. There's a real sense in which their ignorance of God's Word their ignorance of God's character, their ignorance of God's law explains why they are futile in their thinking. It explains why they're darkened in their understanding. It explains why they are alienated from the life of God. But that ignorance is not the full explanation. And rather than diminishing or excusing their guilt, Paul's second reason is going to solidify their guilt. Their ignorance does not excuse them because, B, their ignorance is due to their hardness of heart. Their ignorance is due to their hardness of heart. When you leave a note to your daughter with a list of chores, she's not excused because she decided not to read it. When the IRS sends you a collection letter, you aren't excused because you didn't open it. And you're not excused in a court of law while the judge reads his verdict if you hold your hands over your ears and stubbornly repeat, I can't hear what you're saying. I can't hear what you're saying. In the same way, an unbeliever is not excused by their ignorance because their ignorance is due to their hardness of heart. They harden their hearts against God's Word, which results in their ignorance. And that is why they are futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, and alienated from the life of God. This concept reminds me of what Jesus says in John 3.19. Very different words, but a similar idea. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So the glorious radiance of Christ enters the world or is brought to you through the Scripture by a friend or a preacher or in writing, and you're asked to bow to Him, to put your trust in Him. But you don't love the light. 
You don't want the light He brings. Why? Because you love the darkness. And you love the darkness because your works are evil. Jesus continues in the next verse, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. So you refuse to come to the light. You harden your heart and hide in the darkness because you don't want anyone to know what you have done. Let me appeal to you, unbeliever, non-Christian, agnostic, atheist, anyone who does not bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your ignorance will not excuse you on the day of judgment. Your ignorance will confirm your guilt. Stop hiding from your Maker. He is also your Savior. Come out from the darkness. Do not harden your heart any longer. Come to the light and allow your sins to be exposed because if you do, Christ will wash them away. He will make you into a new man. And if you will not come, if you harden your heart yet again, your guilt will increase along with your ignorance and your futility and darkness and alienation from God. So why are unbelievers in this condition? Because of their hardness of heart, which leads to their ignorance, which results in their futility of mind, darkness of understanding, and alienation from the life of God. That is their desperate condition. Next, Paul focuses on their deplorable conduct. We've seen the condition unbelievers are in. Now we see their conduct. You might expect Paul here to list a catalog of the worst sins. Murder, adultery, and so on. But he doesn't. Because Paul knows full well, just like all of us, that there are many unbelievers who have not committed murder or adultery. Instead, what Paul does is describe in vivid terms what's true universally of all unbelievers. And the first part of their conduct is that, one, they make themselves calloused. They make themselves calloused. The idea of calloused is dead to feeling, desensitized, unable to sense pain, or sometimes a similar phrase, being seared in their conscience. Now, if you learn to play the guitar, you press your soft fingertips into the thin strings and it hurts. But gradually, you keep doing it and your fingertips grow calloused. Thick skin covers your fingertips so that it no longer hurts when you press down on the strings. Not only does it not hurt any longer, 
but what you touch with those same fingertips is now harder to feel. You don't sense as much through them. They've become calloused. That thickened skin is a callous. The first part of an unbeliever's conduct is to make themselves calloused toward God. They make themselves callous toward God. They don't want to feel the pain of conviction. They don't want to sense what he has said or what he means or why he has done something. They don't want to know it. They don't want to be bothered by a sensitive conscience. And so they make themselves calloused. This is exactly what's pictured in Romans 1.32. Though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They are doing the very things they know they shouldn't do and they keep doing them until it no longer hurts to do it. And once that happens, they're calloused and they no longer feel like they're doing anything wrong. The second part of their deplorable conduct is that they give themselves to sensuality. They give themselves to sensuality. Now it's important to clarify up front that by sensuality, Paul is speaking of the most basic idea, meaning that which relates to the senses. He is not speaking of anything regarding sexual immorality in particular. A prudish old maid may give herself over to sensuality through indulgence in eating, material luxuries, decadence in her whisperings, and indolence in her lifestyle without ever being accused of impropriety. So what Paul is speaking about is that which relates to the senses. God has made food and furs and music and rest. And while believers may enjoy those as gifts from God, unbelievers give themselves to them as their gods. This takes on a million different forms and shades across the world. But whatever particular pleasure or collection of pleasures they serve, it is that which they seek. Those pleasures and not God. The Bible calls this idolatry. And it takes no carving, no statue, no image to be an idolater. Just anything that replaces the one true God. Philippians 3.19 says, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. That's a particular sense. Romans 16.18, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. That's who they serve. That's who they're slaves to. Their own appetites. They give themselves up to sensuality. Third, 
They practice every kind of impurity. They practice every kind of impurity. Paul says, they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. At first glance, that might seem like a bit of an overstatement if Paul is talking about all unbelievers. Surely not all of them are greedy to practice each and every kind of impurity. I think that objection is accurate. That's not what Paul's trying to say. Notice how closely this connects back to the previous point. It's not just that unbelievers in general are greedy to practice every kind of possible impurity. Remember, they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So I understand every kind of impurity in light of that sensuality he just spoke of. We might paraphrase just to clarify like this. Because they serve their senses, they're eager for any experience which delights those senses without any regard to the purity of that experience. Because they serve their senses, they're eager for any experience which delights those senses without any regard to the purity of that experience. Now, to the Jew, the notion of clean and unclean dominated their lives. Here, the word translated impurity is the same word for unclean. The unbeliever might have very strong notions of right and wrong, good and evil, but because their thinking is futile, their understanding is darkened, and they're alienated from the life of God, they're actually eager greedy to practice what is in reality impure and unclean. They're not ashamed of it any longer because they don't know that it is impure and unclean. They're ignorant because of the hardness of their heart. And when you connect that back to the idea of being calloused, as they practice these impurities, there is every possibility that they do so without a pang of guilt. They are so darkened in their understanding that they no longer feel that what they are doing is unclean. Think about this. Did the Nazi guard feel guilty when he exterminated his 50th group of Jews? Did the slave owner feel guilty the 50th time he beat his slave without a cause? Does the abortion doctor feel guilty the 50th time he ends the life of an unborn child? Does the thief feel guilty the 50th time he leaves the store with an item in his pocket that he didn't buy? Does the student feel guilty the 50th time he gets his answers from another student? Or does the wife feel guilty the 50th time she argues with her husband? Or the husband the 50th time he belittles his wife? Does the widow feel guilty the 50th time she carries gossip to her neighbor? Or the son feel guilty the 50th time he has to be reminded to take out the trash? 
whatever the level or degree of impurity in the particular act, whether the heinous or the mundane, maybe just a thought of the heart, the walk of flesh follows the same pattern. They make themselves calloused to God's way and give themselves up to the desires of their senses. And so they are eager to practice what in reality is impure and unclean. They eagerly pursue that which is deadly. And that conduct flows from their hardness of heart which makes them ignorant to righteousness and it causes them to be futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, and alienated from the life of God. That is the walk of flesh. That is what we were saved from if you are a Christian or what you're still in if you have not trusted in Christ. Now Paul turns to the walk of faith. This is our new walk. The walk of faith. I'm not referring to some esoteric, abstract, undefinable way of living. This isn't some super spirituality. This is real spirituality. What Paul describes here is down-to-earth, tangible, visible, and extremely practical. And whenever we refer to the walk of faith or our new walk or our walk as Christians, I want this to come to mind, something visible, something tangible and practical. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? But walking by faith is always visible. We walk by faith and not by sight. But walking by faith can always be seen. Otherwise, Hebrews 11 isn't in the Bible. Because the whole chapter is telling us what we saw, what we read about, what we knew happened in their lives. We knew they were walking by faith by what we saw them do. So we walk by faith, not by sight. But when we walk by faith, it will always be visible. So let's look at this walk of faith as Paul defines it here. First, we see its doctrinal foundation. The walk of faith has a doctrinal foundation in verses 20 and 21. Now, we're not going to go through these two verses in detail because their basic point's clear, but the specifics are pretty complex, especially verse 21. In verse 20, after describing the walk of flesh, the condition and conduct of unbelievers, Paul states emphatically, that is not the way you learned Christ. You did not learn Christ in that way. Then in verse 21, he has a parenthetical statement in the middle of which he has a second parenthetical statement. So I want to simplify verse 21 this way. All truth is grounded in the person of Jesus. And a core element of knowing Christ is knowing how to live as a Christian. Then Paul goes on in verses 22 to 24 to describe the path of transformation. So verses 20 and 21, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, 
establish the doctrinal foundation of the walk of faith. And I want to make just two observations and we'll move through them pretty quickly. First, notice the references to instruction. Notice the references to instruction. There's four different references to instruction, and these show us how foundational doctrine is. A, you learned Christ. You learned Christ. Part of our walk of faith is learning Christ. B, you heard about him. You heard about him. Part of our walk of faith is hearing about Christ. You're hearing now. You hear in Sunday school or ABF and small groups, Bible studies. You even hear when you read his word. Then C, you were taught in him. You were taught in him. If the phrase, you learned Christ, spoke to our initial conversion, this phrase, you were taught in him, speaks of our ongoing instruction as believers. Then D, the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus. Paul says that truth is in Jesus. And he links that very directly with our walk. What does the unbeliever do in Romans 1.18? He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He suppresses the truth. What does the believer do with the truth? Well, that's what Paul tells us about in 20 to 24. But in a word, the believer is transformed by the truth. He yields himself to the truth and is transformed by it. So you learned Christ. You heard about him. You were taught in him, and the truth is in Jesus. That brings us to our second observation. Two, notice the verb Paul builds from, taught. The verb Paul builds from is taught. Now this point's strictly grammatical, but everything Paul says in 22 to 24 is subordinate grammatically and it's built off of the phrase, were taught in him. He'll start 22 with to put off, and that just can't stand by itself. So the completion to that is, you were taught to put off. So keep that in mind as we move forward. You were taught, as you were taught in him, to put off. That brings us to divine transformation. This is the path of transformation, our new walk. The walk of faith is the path to transformation. You and I are not walking in faith if we're not being transformed. Our new walk, in sharp contrast to the walk of flesh, brings us closer and closer to being like Jesus Christ. As a Christian matures and walks by faith, God transforms them to be more and more like Christ. And this is the path to transformation. Let's take it in three steps as Paul lays it out. Step one, put off your old self. Put off your old self. 
The first step in being transformed is to stop behaving and thinking and feeling and speaking like we used to. It may be obvious, but it's essential that we put off our old self. Why is it so important? Because A, it belongs to your former way of life, and B, it's corrupt through deceitful desires. Our old self is exactly what Paul just finished describing, and it's what we're trying to put to death. We're being transformed from that old way of life, so put it off. Our old self is ruined, spoiled, corrupt by those desires that we'd looked at, by that sensuality Paul spoke of. That part about giving themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice impurity, that's exactly what we face in our old self in our own lives today, and we need to put it off. So step one in the process of transformation is put off your old self. Step number two, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You might ask, how am I supposed to do that? How can I be renewed in the spirit of my mind? Well, Paul doesn't explain it at all. And I take that to mean that he assumes we can figure it out. So if someone asked you, how can I be renewed in the spirit of my mind, what would you say? Aren't the obvious answers something like, read God's word and meditate on it. Pray. Worship. Spend time with other Christians. Gather together with the church. And so on. Well, I don't have time to prove all of that right now, but... Let me suggest that if you read through the book of Ephesians and note each reference to spirit, sometimes the spirit of man, sometimes the Holy Spirit, but the same word in the Greek, spirit, you'll find a connection to each one of those practices we just mentioned. For example, in Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the Word of God. So there's a link between the Spirit and the Bible. So yeah, read your Bible. Or in Ephesians 5, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the very next sentence? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what does he link the Spirit to in that verse? Most directly, he links it to worship. And corporate worship because it's singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I think those answers, read, read your Bible, pray, worship together, spend time with one another, gather together as a church. All of those are at least elements of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's step two. Step one, put off the old self. Step two, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And step three, put on the new self. In contrast to the old self, which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt, the new self Paul refers to is A, created after the likeness of God. Whose image is it made in? God's image. This is what we've been saying. Transformation from that old self to the likeness of God as seen in Jesus Christ. And B, it is created 
in true righteousness and holiness. Again, note the contrast to the walk of flesh. They're darkened in their understanding. They're futile in their thinking. They're pursuing that which is impure. They're pursuing or giving themselves over to sensuality. But what does the Christian do? He puts on the new self, that new self which looks like Christ, that new self which is made in true righteousness and true holiness. That is the process of transformation. Put off the old, be renewed, put on the new. We put off the old way of living. We put off the futility and the darkness and the alienation. We put off giving ourselves to sensuality and practicing impurity. And we put on the new self created after the likeness of God created in true righteousness and holiness. That is the path to transformation. That is our new walk. And let me say before I close that over the next few chapters, Paul's going to unpack this and apply this in a variety of situations regarding our speech, regarding stealing, regarding anger. He's going to go into the household with husbands and wives. He's going to deal with children and parents and slaves and masters. And this is in many ways, and Pastor Jeremy will talk more about this next week, this will be foundational for all of those ideas. This is the way the Christian changes. He puts off the old self, he's renewed in his mind, and he puts on the new self, that he might become like Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, what a, what a joy to see what you saved us out of and how frightening to be reminded of what we were like. Lord, I pray for those who still are like this and, and perhaps listening. I pray that you would create in them new life that you would bring them to their senses and show them the futility of the way they have been living. Have mercy on them. For your glory, bring them to life. What a joy it is for us to see the, the path of transformation, to be reminded of the simple process of putting off the old man and being renewed and putting on the new man. I pray that we would be able to apply this in our lives to see very tangible and real ways whatever we're dealing with, whether it be anger or whether it be jealousy or gossip or stealing, that we might be able to see the way we put that off and we put on the new man and how that makes us more and more like Jesus Christ. Give us grace as we study this. Transform us individually and as a body to be made in the likeness of God and in true holiness and purity. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.